You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Not a Nobody by Giles Clausen. From Denverite, I'll be reading Fines Are Coming Soon to Denver Landlords Who Failed to Register Multi-Unit Properties by Kyle Harris. And Union Hall's newest exhibition features a roster of emerging artists in downtown Denver by Isaac Vargas. From Westward, I'll be reading, Advocacy Group Asks, Can Denver Rethink Its Approach to Homelessness? by Robert Davis. And, CU Denver Architecture Students Test Shelter Prototype at Safe Camping Site by Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice, Not a Nobody by Giles Clausen. One look at Nailhead, and it's clear he has a story to tell. His nose has a notch missing brought on by injury. It's interesting because no one ever asked me about it before, Nailhead said. He speculated that no one asks because the wound makes him look intimidating. The injury was retribution for a disagreement he had with a group of homeless individuals he'd encountered. The group had set up a camp in a park and put up a chain as a barrier to keep others out. Nudged by his friend, Nailhead approached the group and told them to remove the chain for safety reasons. According to Nailhead, he delivered the message in a way that violated a community code and was punished for it. I got hit with a skateboard, something we call truck fucked, he said. When you get hit with a skateboard, both the wheels land in your eyes and the truck busts your nose up. It's a pretty substantial blow. It's to serve somebody a punishment in my culture. The homeless community lives by a certain code that has to be learned, Nailhead said. Violating the code and the community's trust can lead to violence as retribution. The hit sheared off seven teeth and fractured my sinus cavity, Nailhead said. The most painful part was shearing my teeth off because the roots stay in your gum. He now keeps mostly to himself while moving in and out of different communities living on the streets. According to Nailhead, he is known as someone you don't mess with but also someone who can be trusted to share what he has. Nailhead maintains a small camp in an alley where he has lived for nearly four years. Occasionally, he's forced to move by the police, but he always returns after a few days. The camp consists of a heavy wool blanket draped over a small gap in the foundation and fencing of an apartment building. Inside the lean-to, the floor is covered with more blankets, a few supplies, and a sleeping bag. I think my camp isn't as threatening and is better to my housed neighbors because I don't have a tent, Nailhead said. There are no stakes in the ground. The stakes mean a lot. If you drive a stake into the ground, it is symbolically like you're putting down roots, something permanent. Nailhead keeps the alley clean and picks up any nails or glass to protect tires. He believes this simple act helps him maintain a good relationship with his housed neighbors. The best relationship is when they don't think about me until they take the trash out and see me, and they don't think about me again until they take the trash out again, Nailhead said. Nailhead considers weather to be the greatest threat to him. The recent cold has been difficult for him to navigate. 
The only way to legit stay alive out here is to burn a fire, Nailhead said. Not just any fire will do, though. As Nailhead explained, it has to be a slow-burning fire that creates a lot of heat and little smoke. He has developed his own way of creating fuel for his fires. Dry cardboard is Nailhead's fuel of choice. He tears it into strips and then soaks each strip in a mixture of wax and sterno fuel. If he can't get sterno heaters, he relies on lighter fluid. Nailhead always keeps his fires inside some type of fireproof container and off the street. When it becomes dangerously cold, Nailhead goes to the Aurora Day Resource Center. He travels from downtown Denver to Aurora because he feels the ADRC treats people kindly. The ADRC is there only to provide you with a place to be warm and alive. They're not trying to push anything on you, Nailhead said. Nailhead first became homeless after leaving his life on the East Coast, where he had developed a drug and alcohol addiction. He said if he didn't leave his old life, he would die of alcohol poisoning or a cocaine overdose. He figured if he gave up his job as an electrician, he wouldn't be able to afford the drugs and alcohol that threatened his life. He wasn't sure why he chose Denver, but he believes his poverty and homelessness saved his life. So far, his strategy is working. He drinks very little today, compared to when he was a working electrician, and he no longer uses hard drugs like crack cocaine. He mostly uses alcohol or drugs to endure the hardships of living on the street, but he no longer feels he needs drugs or alcohol in the same way. Getting off the streets hasn't been easy. Nailhead isn't sure if he's ready to start trying to get an apartment or other more permanent housing. He knows eventually the time will come when his body can't endure the changing weather and other threats. Nailhead has been arrested a handful of times for being in various parks after hours and for sitting or lying down in the public right-of-way near the 16th Street Mall. These arrests may make it harder for him to find housing when he's ready. He knows people may not understand why he continues to live on the street, and he said it is hard to explain. I'm a nobody, Nailhead said, but out here I'm kind of not a nobody. I am kind of respected. You can't find that everywhere. The next two articles are from Denverite. Fines are coming soon to Denver landlords who failed to register multi-unit properties by Kyle Harris. Landlords, beware. If you haven't secured a license for your multi-unit property, the city of Denver is sending out notices of violations and soon will be waging fines. The Landlord Licensing Program was established to ensure that landlords kept their buildings up to code and in safe and healthy condition. The registry also allows the city to track how many rental properties are on the market. The rollout of the program has been slow, and many landlords held off on securing a license, despite being eligible to start applying since March 2022. To date, the city has issued 2,822 licenses. There are approximately 25,000 multi-unit properties in the city that need to be licensed. If that city council estimate of multi-unit rentals in Denver is accurate, the city has an estimated licensing compliance rate for residential rentals at 11%, said Eric Escudero, a spokesperson for Excise and Licenses Office. As of Thursday, the Department of Excise and Licenses has set out, sent out 145 notices of violation to multi-unit landlords. More will be sent out soon. The first round of notices are being delivered to property owners who have received public health complaints. 
Enforcement action, including citations and fines, is considered a last resort of the city, said Excise and Licenses Executive Director Molly Duplachian in a statement. She says the law has been in effect for nearly three months. The department has engaged in extensive outreach campaigns, and it's time people comply. Fines start at $150, but can go up to $999 if citations are ignored. Here's how the program works. To apply, landlords must receive a third-party inspection to ensure the property meets minimal health and safety standards. There are 37 companies and inspectors to choose from who are all equipped with a checklist of what is required. Licenses are valid for four years, unless there's a change in ownership, in which case a new inspection and license is required. Our hope is that landlords and property management companies who receive communication from the city about unlawful operations will take immediate action to get an inspection and apply for a license so we can complete our mission of ensuring minimal housing standards are met for rental properties across Denver, noted Duplachian. Landlords renting out single-unit properties must secure a license before January 1, 2024. The city recognizes it's going to take time to get the licensing compliance rate to a high level as people continue to learn about the licensing requirement, make necessary improvements to properties that don't have minimal housing standards, and for enforcement to identify and contact all unlawfully operating landlords in the city, said Escudero. Union Hall's newest exhibition features a roster of emerging artists in downtown Denver by Isaac Vargas. Artist Isaac Jordan Lee needed to use a 22-foot ladder to install his attention-grabbing piece, Kaleidoscope 5, a spiderweb-like installation made entirely of plastic bags, to hang high at a brand-new exhibition opening this week. Lee's work is one of the pieces featured at Union Hall's Rough Gems, The Ultimate Boon. The exhibition opens February 23rd at the Coloradans, 1750 Wawada Street. It's part of the Rough Gems program, an effort meant to give Denver creatives an opportunity to develop their curatorial skills. Co-curators Florence Blackwell and Nadia Jackson recruited five emerging artists they knew well to curate what will be one of the first major gallery exhibitions in their art careers. The cohorts of artists, Colton Cody, Lisbeth Guadalupe, Lee, Eduardo Vasquez, and Xavier Hadley, each tell a story of their heroes' journeys through visual, sonic, and three-dimensional installations. The group is made up of multidisciplinary artists and curators from a wide range of backgrounds. I am sincerely ready for more voices to be heard in this city, said Blackwell, a transdisciplinary artist and art historian. Vasquez, a self-titled iPhoneographer, said his work on display is a collection of photographs that he has been building for the past 15 years. I started shooting with iPhones in 2008. I was utilizing a medium that was accessible to me and allowed me to create art. With technology, I realized early on that I was on to something, Vasquez said. Blackwell and Jackson first came up with the idea for the ex exhibit while working at the MCA. We were both feeling that we wanted to make a mark on the city that we both have navigated for so many years. The process is not just about us, it's about the artists. We believe in their work and we really wanted to maximize the space, 
said Jackson, a Denver native and graduate of Denver School of the Arts. The space, which usually holds 11 to 16 pieces, will display 33 total pieces come opening day. Guadalupe, a graduate of Metropolitan State University and one of the highlighted artists, is excited about changing the narrative around full-time artists. Growing up a first-generation Latina, her mother often encouraged her to pursue higher-paying careers. I always wanted to be an artist. I feel like I am now baby-stepping into the art world, Guadalupe said. The following articles are from Westward. Advocacy Group asks, Can Denver Rethink Its Approach to Homelessness? by Robert Davis. A relatively new political group in Denver is asking voters to consider different ways to address homelessness from the ones some lawmakers and mayoral candidates are talking about. Citizens for a Safe and Clean Denver, a nonprofit and nonpartisan coalition of business and property owners, held a private forum with residents of the Barclay Towers at 17th and Larimer Streets on February 22nd as part of their ongoing outreach to change the conversation around strategies for helping the unhoused. At the meeting, the coalition asked the residents to consider solutions such as involuntary committing unsheltered homeless people into mental health or substance abuse treatment programs, bolstering law enforcement presence at encampment sweeps, and ending Denver's housing-first approach to homelessness. It's not compassionate to let someone sleep outside in a tent when it's negative three degrees outside because they have a substance abuse issue or problem with their mental health, Craig Arston, one of the group's founders, said during the meeting. The solutions offered at the meeting stand in contrast to ideas from mayoral candidates like Lisa Calderon, who has said she would increase the number of city-owned housing units to get people off the streets. Other candidates, such as Leslie Herod and Ian Thomas Tafoya, have said they would stop sweeping encampments to focus on improving connections between people experiencing homelessness and social workers who can connect them with services and housing options. Members of Safe and Clean Denver said the group started organizing about 18 months ago after having multiple run-ins with people experiencing homelessness in Denver. For example, Wendy Heath Santoramo, a broker with HomeSmart Realty and former U.S. Marshal, shared a story about he, how she and her wife were accosted by a homeless person near the Denver Post building. Heath Santoramo said her wife called the cops, but the department's slow response forced her wife to pull her handgun on the individual to protect their safety. David Howard, a co-founder of the coalition, said one of his neighbors in the Golden Triangle called the cops at least 500 times on a local encampment, but the police refused to remove the tents. So, Howard said his neighbor resorted to vigilantism and scared the people away from the area. Since their founding, Arfston said the group has met with Mayor Michael Hancock to discuss homeless policy initiatives. Arfston, whose day job is financial planner, added that the group also holds regular meetings with members of the Denver Police Department's District 6 Precinct, which covers downtown, and have met with Armando Saldate, the executive director of Denver's Department of Public Safety. Denver was a great city, and it could be a great city again, Howard said. One of the main issues the coalition focused on during the forum was Denver's housing-first approach to ending homelessness, which they said has failed because it doesn't lead to recovery. 
Housing First refers to a service plan where an individual is placed in supportive housing before they enter other programs for substance abuse, mental and physical health care, or job training. There are multiple empirical studies that show the Housing First approach is particularly effective at improving housing outcomes for people experiencing chronic homelessness and those with substance abuse disorders. For instance, one study conducted by the University of Toronto in 2015 found that Housing First models reduced the number of days their participants excessively drank alcohol over a two-year period. In addition, a review of Denver's Social Impact Bond Program by the think tank Urban Institute in 2021 found that the program increased access to health care for the city's chronically homeless, especially for those who need mental, physical, and substance abuse disorder programs. More than 70% of the people who entered Denver's Social Impact Bond Program also stayed housed after three years, the study found. The group also took issue with the support that safe injection sites have received from local lawmakers and mayoral candidates, which Arsten described as overdose reversal sites. Safe injection sites are placed where people can use illicit substances under the supervision of medical professionals. Researchers at the University of Southern California say these sites can also provide critical services like case management and medical, social, and mental health care. Representative Elizabeth Epps and Senator Julie Gonzalez, both Democrats, are co-sponsoring a bill to allow municipalities to establish their own policies regarding safe injection sites. The bill follows other efforts by the legislature to in integrate harm reduction approaches to substance abuse disorder treatment in Colorado. Instead of using Housing First programs or approving safe injection sites, the group asked voters to consider adopting a treatment-first model to address homelessness. This approach would require people living on the street to successfully complete some kind of treatment program before they are placed in housing. Members of the group said Alberta, Canada offers a good example of a treatment-first approach, although the province's website say they actually take a housing-first approach to addressing homelessness. Whoever is the next mayor of Denver will set the tone for the next several years, Arston said. We need to make sure they get it right. CU Denver Architecture Students Test Shelter Prototype at Safe Camping Site by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. A year ago, architecture students at the University of Colorado Denver built a structure that they thought could replace the ice fishing tents at safe camping sites for people experiencing homelessness in the Mile High City. But first, they installed the wood and canvas structure, which looks like an especially tall tent, outside on the campus to experience the Colorado elements and also collect feedback from students and faculty members. To have a full-size structure to make comments on was kind of a fun engagement method for people to get involved with, says Richard McSwain, the former president of CU Denver's chapter of Freedom by Design, a nonprofit community service program for architecture students. Among other things, comments noted that the window was too high and the door didn't open and close perfectly. After receiving that input, McSwain, who graduated from the Master's Architecture program last May, and other members of Freedom by Design made some tweaks to the prototype, which has held up well in the outdoors. And now the structure is getting its second major test, a stint at the safe camping site at the R.E.P. Taylor Municipal Center at 4635 Peoria Street. 
residents can check it out, staff can check it out, and they can give their feedback, says Gray Wolitikt, Senior Director of the Built Environment for the Colorado Village Collaborative, which runs Denver's three safe camping sites. It's really fun to work with students and leverage their innovative ideas and make it work for us, too. Denver has had safe camping sites since December of 2020, following a decision by Mayor Michael Hancock to approve the concept as a temporary solution to deal with homelessness during the pandemic. But even as the emergency has subsided, the sites have remained, and Denver City Council has continued supporting them. The CU Denver students designed the structure to be more comfortable than the tents, which lack insulation. The canvas that wraps around the wooden skeleton of the prototype has a layer of insulation, which helps retain heat during cold winter nights. The wood also retains heat. It would definitely be warmer than a tent, says Wilbur Kagilani, an undergraduate architecture student at CU Denver and a member of Freedom by Design. The students say that the units would be a good investment for the CVC, which is funded mainly by City of Denver dollars. While the materials in each structure total just under $2,000, about four times the cost of an ice fishing tent, the tents have a much shorter lifespan. Economic feasibility is something we're going to be testing out, Wallatich says. Working on the project, Kyogi Lanier has learned about thermodynamics, the importance of materials, and zoning codes for tents and pallet shelters. He's also studied those subjects in the classroom. That helped him design an element at the front of the structure that allows the door to open and close properly. It's been amazing. It's been mostly educational, Kyogi Lanyi says. The Freedom by Design students recently set up the structure at the safe camping site, placing it near tents and pallet shelters. Site residents and staffers looked on with curiosity as the students worked for a few hours to get the structure fully installed. For people, it's easy to maneuver it and set it up notes McSwain. Although residents can study the structure, they won't be able to stay in it. We're going to be going through a process with the city to make sure we're meeting all their code, code rules, says Willitich, who adds that since the structure is soft-sided, it allows for a little more flexibility with city rules. McSwain is no longer at CU Denver. He runs his own design and build company, McSquared, but he still hopes to see the Freedom by Design project succeed and become the archetype structure for safe camping sites in Denver. To have a proving ground for this is the primary starting point to make sure it works, he says. After a decade, Debbie Ortega still fighting to put railway safety back on track, by Katie Cheshire. Councilwoman Debbie Ortega has been working on a plan for Denver to regulate land use near railways for nearly a decade, after first becoming concerned about the issue in 2013 when a crude oil train derailment in Quebec killed 47 people. I started noticing more and more flammable rail cars moving through the city and parked in the Central Valley under our viaducts in near downtown Ball Arena, Coors Field, and Mile High Stadium, Ortega says. In the February 21st Land Use, Transportation, and Infrastructure Denver City Council Committee meeting, Representatives from the Denver Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and Denver Community Planning and Development presented on rail safety in the city based on preliminary results from a study conducted by HNTB, a consulting firm, in partnership with DOTI and CPD. 
David Krutzinger of DOTI said incidents related to hazardous materials carried by trains are rated as medium risk. Draft findings from the study indicate that there were more than 100,000 hazmat railcar shipments in Denver in 2021. In February of 2022, a BNSF railway train derailed, sending three cars into the South Platte River. Luckily, Kritzinger noted, those cars were not carrying hazardous materials. The planned Uinta Basin Railway, which would carry oil from Utah through Colorado, will cause a fourfold increase in freight cars with hazardous materials traveling through Denver. Currently, about 208 cars with hazardous materials travel through the city daily. That, in addition to the recent train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, has made train safety even more pressing in Ortega's eyes. I don't want to wait for an incident to occur in our city and see catastrophic impacts if there are things we could be doing today to mitigate that impact, she says. Ortega introduced an ordinance in September of 2022 that would require those looking to develop property near railways to show that they have mitigated for the impacts of potential railway incidents before receiving permits. That recommendation came out of a 2016 report from a working group on railroad safety that Ortega had assembled the previous year. There was a new checkoff box that was put on the permitting form, and it was intended for this to be a voluntary program, Ortega said at the meeting. Fast forward, we asked for the data and found out that nobody had been doing anything. What we learned was the agencies didn't feel like they had the authority to ask the developers to do anything, and the developers had not done anything to address the issue. Ortega expects the ordinance, which is put off because other members of city council wanted the results of the study before implementing any bill, to come back on March 14th once the report's findings are finalized. Currently, only developers who choose to do so voluntarily accommodate considerations of the risks of proximity to railways. The idea behind the ordinance is to require them. Ortega says there are a variety of options available to developers, and it's not designed to prevent development. Part of what the report does is have a menu of options that the developers can choose from, and these are options that should not add to the cost of a project, she says. This has never been about stopping development in our city. It's been about making sure that the development has been built to ensure the safety of the people in those buildings. Most rail regulations come from the federal level, so the city can control only land use and emergency response, though Ortega notes she is using her voice to advocate for improved braking regulations at the federal level. We can try to get railroads to work with us, Ortega says, They've been part of these conversations going all the way back to 2016, but we have no authority over them. Another struggle for those looking to learn more about railway safety is that, unlike with passenger routes, there is not publicly available information about what materials freight trains carry or when and where they carry them. The reason people know about the hazardous materials in Denver is often through personal observation. In 2022, Green Latinos, an environmental advocacy organization, published Who Bears the Cost? North Denver Environmental Justice Report and Data Audit, finding that although official data wasn't accessible, residents in North Denver reported seeing open coal cars passing through the community. It's disturbing, 
the lack of information that's available to the public, says Ian Thomas Tafoya, Colorado Director of Green Latinos. Ortega herself has seen many trains carrying petroleum products through the city and has seen them parked in freight lots for days. Until or unless there is ever a move to relocate the central main line, we will continue to have these products come through our city, and it's not uncommon, she says. At the committee meeting, Ortega asked what level of data will be available to the public in the final report and was told that the broad information about the amount of cars carrying hazardous materials presented to city council represented the data that will be in the final report. Despite the study identifying risks, city officials repeatedly described the risk level as low compared to other risks faced by the city. A critical piece that we consider is evaluating the cost-benefit of some of the recommendations that are there said Matt Mueller of the Denver Office of Emergency Management. There are things that can be done that are extremely expensive that could be effective, but we also want to sort of consider what the city's responsibility is versus our federal government, as well as our railroad partners. After the meeting, Ortega noted that the study will help Denver be able to access federal dollars to help with railway safety costs. Mueller suggested further study of the costs versus benefits of the study's recommendations. It feels like it's been 10 years almost that we've been working on this, and for them to say we needed to do more study, I was like, well, haven't we just been studying? Tafoya says. Ortega also wishes the process would move a bit faster, but she's committed to seeing it through collaboratively discussing the ordinance with rail companies and her fellow city councilors to see what changes might be needed. Kritzinger indicated that United Pacific and BSNF, the two main freight companies with tracks through Denver, are willing to collaborate on some of the solutions identified in the report regarding improving high-risk locations. The report identified a total of 12 to 15 locations that could benefit from upgraded signs, signals, or barriers to increase safety. Those locations tend to be near multifamily developments that are strategically placed along passenger rail corridors to promote growth in tandem with transit. They are also in industrial areas. There is where many of our high-risk crossings are located, as well as some of the origins and destinations of hazardous materials with different petroleum refineries and fueling stations in or near Denver, say, said David Gaspers of Community Planning and Development. The study also suggested more training for first responders, examinations of site densities when considering new developments near freight corridors, and more safety barriers. Freight rail risk is a part of larger Vision Zero goals, Gaspers said, we are trying to reduce these deaths to zero, and a part of it is freight railroad risk. Three or four deaths from rail incidents happen in Denver each year, according to the presentation. According to Tafoya, Green Latinos has found that people who live near railways want a stronger voice when it comes to decisions about those railways. They're concerned not just about derailment or direct incidents between people and trains, but also sound, vibrations, and air pollution. Tafoya notes that the climate impacts of railways didn't seem to be factored into the city's risk calculation when it should have been. Air quality is part of Vision Zero, because Vision Zero's main premise is that things are dangerous by design, Tafoya says. We've designed infrastructure that operates off combustion engines, and as a result, 
These are the outcomes. I don't see how that's any different than we don't have the right timed light here or we didn't make the sidewalk wide enough. It's all dangerous by design. And when we allow zoning next to places that are dangerous by design, there's risk and impacts to public health. Tafoya is glad Ortega is pushing for consideration of rail safety and hopes the conversation continues. As he sees it, the train hasn't quite left the station when it comes to solutions on railway safety in Denver. Super Bowl of Crypto World Taking Over National Western Center by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. Although February is the month for the actual Super Bowl, March features the Super Bowl of the Crypto World, ETH Denver. Coming to ETH Denver is like nothing you'll ever experience, says John Paller, a founder of the crypto conference that will overtake the National Western Center in early March, with events and venues in nearby Rhino from late February into March. Considering that ETH Denver gets its name from Ethereum, a popular blockchain platform, it's no surprise that many of the attendees of the conference, which is now in its sixth iteration, are proponents of this particular Web3 technology. You're not going to hear people talk about crypto prices or investing or exchanges. We don't talk about any of that stuff. We're building decentralized applications and technology that can fundamentally reshape society and how we organize ourselves, not just commercially, but socially and politically, says Poller, who describes ETH Denver as part Burning Man and part software builder crowd with heavy elements of creativity. The annual ETH Denver series features a hackathon, which the conference builders refer to as a build laton with an emphasis on misspelling build, since that's part of the crypto world's meme culture. There will also be workshops, crypto 101 lessons, panel discussions, speeches, and NFT art exhibits at the National Western from March 2nd to March 5th. The fact that the Crypto Super Bowl takes place year after year in Denver is no accident. About a decade ago, crypto enthusiasts in the Mile High City began hosting meetups where they could network and talk blockchain, which is essentially a virtual record-keeping system that can execute contracts without the need for a third party. When it comes to cryptocurrencies, the idea is to have the blockchain, rather than a bank, confirm and execute contracts. In 2017, these meetings were transformed into the ETH Denver Conference, which is now world-renowned, and it's had staying power in Colorado. Power expects 25,000 to 35,000 people to show up this year, which would be a major increase from the 13,000 who came to Denver for the conference last year. That's part of why ETH Denver has shifted its main exhibition space from the Sports Castle on Broadway to the National Western Center, a much larger space. And beyond the legacy that ETH Denver has been building in Denver, Pollard feels that this type of community and the ethos of Colorado mesh well. On the one hand, we're very progressive and technology-driven, blue statey on some things. But then we're very libertarian and Wild Westish on some other parts. We're kind of purple statish. That reminds me of Web3, Poller says, using the term that refers to the new generation of the web that is based around blockchain. ETH Denver, whose mascot is a buffacorn, 
a combination buffalo and unicorn is free for attendees. Instead of charging an entry fee, the conference makes money through sponsorships. But Power, who wants everyone from noobs to crypto experts to show up, doesn't even like to call ETH Denver a conference. Conferences are typically trade shows with lots of thought leaders and big speakers and corporate rollouts and all this kind of stuff. Suits. It has a very distinct sort of vibe to it. It's not uncommon that you see tickets that are $1,000 to $2,500, he notes. ETH Denver is very different. It's bottom-up, community-driven. There still will be some big speakers at the conference. Caitlin Long, a blockchain consultant based in Wyoming, a crypto-friendly state, will speak, as will Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, albeit virtually. And Governor Jared Polis, a crypto supporter and speaker at last year's conference, will also deliver a speech. Governor Polis has spoken about some of this stuff over the last couple of years. He's made a gubernatorial proclamation that Colorado intends to be the first digital state. His office has been very keen on us supporting the use of Colorado cooperative frameworks, Poller says. At the 2022 ETH Denver, Polis announced that Colorado would begin accepting cryptocurrency for tax and fee payments. However, that program has not really taken off. It's just six of the 1.37 million payments of state taxes that Coloradans between the program's launch on September 1st and December 12th of 2022 were done using cryptocurrency. Part of the lack of hype for the crypto tax filing system may have to do with the fact that cryptocurrencies hit a rough patch over the last year. The prices of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ether have dropped significantly. Those price drops contributed to the November collapse of cryptocurrency exchange and hedge fund FTX, whose founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, is now facing fraud and conspiracy charges. But Pollard believes that within a bear market, the cream rises to the top. You'll see some of the best products that we've seen over the years. And regarding the founder of FTX, who contributed millions of dollars to political causes in Colorado, Pollard says, Sam Bankman-Fried is a scammer. He's a complete schmuck. He's Bernie Madoff in an afro and flip-flops. Canadian indie rock band The Rural Alberta Advantage comes to the high dive by Justin Criado. Our neighbors to the north sure do love their indie rock, supporting a healthy scene with acts that have broken into the American market over the years. One of these Canadian export is the Rural Alberta Advantage. The trio formed in Toronto in 2005 and has relentlessly toured the provinces and states ever since. Guitarist and vocalist Nils Edenloff points to one of the band's initial concerts in Seattle after the great shutdown of the pandemic. Edenloff, vocalist-keyboardist Amy Cole, and drummer Paul Banwatt just couldn't contain their enthusiasm. It was super emotional. It was the first time being close to people, Edenloff says, adding the band's manager said afterward that the trio played everything incredibly fast. We were just so excited. The Rural Alberta Advantage is back in the U.S. for a string of shows and will be playing the high dive on Tuesday, February 28th. Georgia Harmer is providing support. 
It'll be the Rural Alberta Advantage's first show in the Mile High City in nearly a decade, Edenloff notes. He's thrilled to be back in the Rockies and is grateful that fans, particularly in America, have been showing support since touring began. We're lucky enough that we're in a position that people are still remembering us, Edenloff says. If we were just starting out now, it would be so much harder. We do feel fortunate that people are coming out to shows, he says. The remoteness of recent times did nothing for the band's creativity, Edenloff laments, though the band released an EP, The Rise, in March of 2022, and started 2023 with a single, Plague Dogs, from another upcoming EP. We were kind of spinning our wheels and things weren't gelling, but once we started getting together again in limited fashion, it really hammered home that something happens when the three of us get together, Edenloff recalls. I really realized that when Amy came back in 2018, after a year-plus hiatus, into the band, like, yeah, something works between the three of us. It's intangible, in a way. We all come from very different backgrounds in terms of our interests and influences. All of these things come together in a weird collision of things, and it becomes greater than the sum of its parts. That healthy interaction, face-to-face, when things happen quick and fast, it's what we needed. The rural Alberta's advantage lyrics typically center around the band members' hometowns and heartbreak. Plague Dogs addresses the pandemic shutdown, however, and is a little sonically different than what the trio typically does, Edenloff says. With Plague Dogs, I think it's probably more angular than a lot of the stuff we've put out in the past. It pushes the dynamics into the very extremes more so than we have in previous songs, with the drop-downs and the chorus are ultra-quiet, then the big parts are even more glorious, he explains. I think we have a taste for what makes us, us. There's always that through line from the first stuff until now. I like playing loud and fast and hard through an acoustic guitar while Paul wails on a kit. Those sorts of things are always going to be there. I guess we kind of lean into it more. Alongside compatriots such as Wolf Parade and Born Ruffians, the rural Alberta advantage continues to proudly carry the Canadian indie rock flag forward. It behooves American audiences to check the group out during this run. There may be just more to the band than meets the eye. I always like the fact that there's a disconnect in what you see on stage and what the three of us are actually doing. From day one, when we started playing shows, people would come up to us and be like, I did not think that what you guys were doing on the album would be translated to such a volume with a drummer on a cocktail kit, a guy with an acoustic guitar, and a female singer playing keyboard, Edenloff says. If you like any aspect of what we do, there's a good chance that you'll be drawn into what we're doing live. The Rural Alberta Advantage, 7 p.m. Tuesday, February 28th, High Dive, 7 South Broadway. Tickets are 22 to $30. Vale's new Ultimate Opera Ski Spot is a Musical Rabbit Hole by Justin Criado. Jefferson Airplane may have warned us about chasing rabbits in the band's psychedelic 1967 hit, White Rabbit. But if you're in Vale, the recently opened entertainment venue, Chasing Rabbits, is the place to be. A fresh spot for families, adults, locals, and tourists alike the space nestled within Vale Village's Solaris Pizza offers a plethora of experiences across its four unique rooms. 
Created by Vail Boutique development firm, the Solaris Group, in partnership with design firm Rockwell Group, Chasing Rabbits comprises psychedelic spaces titled The Restaurant, The Library, Rabbit Hole, and Moon Rabbit. Once you fall down this posh 13,000-square-foot rabbit hole, options include films, live music, comedy shows, bingo nights, and more. Developing such a unique project for our ski town was both challenging and rewarding, says Solaris Group President Sharon Cohn of the two-year endeavor. We set out to create a destination that would offer multiple opportunities for entertainment and dining, while also maintaining the distinctive heartbeat of our community. Since Chasing Rabbits opened its doors to the public in December, people have enjoyed exploring all of the various elements of the -the one-of-a-kind rooms and have been coming back for more according to Solaris Vice President Thea Noble. We've loved that we've seen the same guests there two, three nights in a row, experiencing all the different things that the space has to offer. One night, they might be in the arcade with their family. The next night, they might be dining in the restaurant, she says. When you're traveling to Vail, you can experience all the different types of dining or playing all within the same venue. We are able to have it as a space where the community can really make it their own. People can rent it out for weddings or business events. We also offer our own events like weekly bingo, which we saw a lot of locals attend. We're also doing jazz and DJ nights. Noble adds that patrons can customize Chasing Rabbits to what they're looking for. What we love about the space is that the design really mimics the different experiences. Each of the rooms has a different design and feel that relates to what's going on in those rooms, she explains. A deeper dive into Chasing Rabbits starts with the restaurant, which has a Mediterranean-influenced menu offering light, bright, and citrusy flavors and a drink program focused on classic cocktails using spirits from Greece, Sicily, and Sardinia. Afterwards, guests can make their way to the eclectic, quirky lounge called The Library. With surprise halo lighting interwoven throughout, it sits between towering walls of books and offers late-night libations and its own unique menu. Those who are still feeling adventurous can follow the hallway that leads from the library through a secret door, where east meets west at Moon Rabbit. Once within the cloak-and-dagger entryway, a journey through a hallway of reflective red marquee lighting leads curious patrons to a richly textured immersive room draped in velvet. The walls, adorned with a hand-woven rope screen by Brooklyn artist Chelsea Plum, provide the perfect juxtaposition to the floral wall covering in the ceiling coffers above. The speakeasy bar there, inspired by the Chinese tale of the moon rabbit creating the elixir of life, offers world-class service and laid-back atmosphere. The menu in this decadent room features light bites, including dim sum and artistic cocktails in elaborate presentations. Visitors then follow a mirrored infinity corridor to Rabbit Hole, a gaming club and screening room that's reminiscent of a 1980s arcade. Inside, they can enjoy Pac-Man, Skee-Ball or Twister, as well as a full bar, movie screens, and a photo booth. Within the playful space, Guests can choose from a menu of elevated childhood favorites and 80s and tiki-influenced cocktails. It was important for us to design a space where all ages feel like there's something for them to do. 
from the arcade to the movie screenings, we're keeping that in mind, Noble says. The great thing about chasing rabbits is its many experiences in one. It's something that's unique to the Colorado region, so it's a nice way to hit the slopes and enjoy great food, great laughs, and fun. Regular music programming includes the Cottontail Club Sunday nights with resident DJ Lando and Lucky Fridays, which include guest DJs every week. There's also Tuesday Bingo Night at Rabbit Hole and movie nights throughout the week. In addition, Chasing Rabbits offers memberships with perks, including early access to reservations, discounts on food and beverages, and exclusive member-only events. It's the ultimate après ski and nightlife destination to Vail, concludes Marcus Cassio, Solaris Group Director of Hospitality. Chasing Rabbits offers an approachable destination for the entire family after a day on the slopes or a trendy dinner in nightlife venue for those who are looking for a delightful distraction of bespoke experiences for dining, sipping, and playing. Chasing Rabbits is located in Vale Village at 141 East Meadow Drive, Suite 104. For more information, visit ChasingRabbitsVale.com. Arvada Center Welcomes You to Our Town by Tody Tresca. The Arvada Center kicks off its 2023 Black Box Repertory Company season with Thornton Wilder's 1938 Pulitzer Prize winning play, Our Town. Wilder's play is a mainstay of the American theater canon and is taught to students all over the country. If you've never seen Our Town before, our production is an honest representation of one of the best plays ever written, says director and actor Jeffrey Kent. If you've seen Our Town before, I hope you'll see it again, because you're at a different place in your life, and different things will resonate with you now. This play has stuff that's relevant for teens, parents, grandparents, and then those facing the last moments of life. Our Town tells a story about residents of a fictionalized American town, Grover's Corner, New Hampshire, during the early 20th century, as they deal with the complexities of life in a small community. Through the relationship of neighbors George Gibbs, played by Thomas Tiege Morgan Arsola, and Emily Webb, Claylish Colderon, the play takes audiences on a three-act journey through the circle of life. The script invokes metatheatrical techniques, such as the play being set, not just staged, inside the theater in which it is being performed, and including the venue's stage manager, Jeffrey Kent, as its narrator to connect the audience and performers. Since its premiere, this play has been one of Wilder's most frequently performed, and critics laud it for its ability to capture the universal human experiences of love, life, and loss. My concept for the show is to just try to do the play simply and clearly, Kent says. Our framework is what we call a designer run, which is a part of the normal rehearsal process in American theater. It's a performance of the show that all the designers come to watch, pre-adding costumes, lights, sound, and set. We're attempting to capture that moment before the technical elements enter the story, so this production is very stripped down. The only musical accompaniment in our town is a vintage 1860s pump organ played by Frank Oden and arranged by music director Emily Van Fleet, who also plays Mrs. Gibbs in the production. 
There's hardly any lighting or sound design. The props are portrayed by the actors using mime, and the costumes are simple pieces. One of the things I've come to appreciate about the play is that it's a love letter to theater making, says Matt Zambrano, who plays Mr. Webb in the production and serves as the pantomime consultant. In a time when so much theater is over-designed or filled with projections, it's a gift to return to storytelling at its most basic level. Our Town opens on Friday, February 24th, and is presented along with Karen Zacharias' contemporary comedy, The Book Club Play, which opens on March 17th, as a part of the Arvada Center's repertory theater season. The organization began experimenting with a repertory model back in 2016, when it cast a troupe of actors who perform up to three plays on alternating days in its black box space. Thirteen actors perform in Our Town as part of the Arvada Center's repertory company, and seven of them will also appear in the book club play. Usually when you're casting repertory, you never get to cast your dream cast because you're always compromising with the needs of the other play, Kent explains. Lynn and I cast our shows together, and we immediately agreed on the actors. We always want our cast here to be a mix of new and old, both in terms of age and experience. So this cast has people who've done lots of repertory theater before and people who are doing some of their very first professional work. Blending new actors with seasoned professionals allows for each group to learn from each other and brings in a diversity of perspectives. This artist-forward approach to theater is one of the reasons Kent prioritizes working at the Arvada Center. Our rehearsal room is close to what I would call Buntport's style of theater, Kent says, It's highly collaborative, and we're all asking each other, does that work? Great, let's do more of that and less of this. And we're all kind of, as a group, just constantly shifting things, and I love it. The best idea wins, and it doesn't matter where the idea comes from. We are just trying to have fun telling stories. This is Zambrano's first time as a repertory company member at the Arvada Center, and he has been enjoying the experience. Jeff is a great director who knows he doesn't know everything and creates a room where people feel like we can contribute to the conversation, Zambrano says. It just feels like now, more than ever, that joy is an active, radical choice of resistance. So, I'm just loving going to work and getting to have fun. Our town breaks apart sentimentality to remind us of the value of each moment, Kent says. No human being can live every moment to its fullest, but all human beings could leave each moment a little bit more. The play makes you want to call your mother or reach out to your children and celebrate them because the time we have on this planet is fleeting. I hope that after audience members leave, they will just take a moment to appreciate the present. Our Town, Saturday, February 25th through May 21st, various times, Arvada Center, 6901 Wadsworth Boulevard, Arvada. Tickets start at $45. Find more information at arvadacenter.org. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.